we are trendsetters, pioneers. Some might say. We were doing it before it was cool. That's true. Um, it's true. I am. I am incognito this week in a different part of the state, and <laughs> hence I don't have our normal recording equipment. So if you are listening to this and going, hmm, that's just that the, the normally exception, exceptional level of professionalism and recording sure. quality I have come to expect from the armchair producers. Seems a bit subpar this week. Uh-huh. It, that's it. I'm recording on my iPad from a uh, undisclosed location. Um, and uh, it, uh, it, we have to make do with what we can get. So we apologize if it's not up to our mm-hmm. usual levels of crapulence. Um, you'll, what was it? We will, you'll indulge us, if you will. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, just for, for everyone playing along at home, shall we say, um, last week we watched the Spike Lee-directed, rather more mainstream, traditional Hollywood ish movie um the inside man um co-starring um denzel washington clive owen willem dafoe um uh, christopher Plummer, who was our connection from the previous session of, uh, of star trek uh, jodie foster as well so it was a real ensemble cast and it was my turn to choose where we were going next and in spite of one or two very subtle elbows to my ribs i did not go to serenity like certain <laughs> travis wanted us to i decided it was a good excuse for me to finally get around to watching spike lee's black Klansman. um so that is our chain movie for this week um uh it is travis's turn to choose a movie branching off in this this time so it'll be interesting to see what happens there i have gone down one hell of a pulp session this week not the band no their pulp novel collection i decided you know what i'm actually going to watch lovecraft country the tv show and i have many wonderful thoughts on that but i also decided to um consume the book that it's based on which is a very very quintessential classic pulp novel very in line with a lot of um, H.P. Lovecraft style okay. stories. Yeah, I say it's Lovecraft, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's it's not quite as um, Victorian as H.P. Um, Lovecraft stuff, but it's it's definitely got that more kind of entertainment side of things to it. So it's an interesting comparison going the changes they've made from the TV show to the book. Um, and uh travis is going to talk a little bit about it chapter two and some more of the crown and we did decide that we were going to actually listen to bruce springsteen's new album so we'll have a few thoughts on that and i did have a listen to the knife on your suggestion after last week oh yes that's right i forgot about that one so let's get straight into it shall we and uh let's go and talk about black clansman it is. Uh, people might remember I've um, reviewed this in the past, uh, and I was effusive with my praise. I really liked this film. I thought it managed to straddle a very nice line between playing homage to sort of black exploitation films. If you're not familiar with those, you're probably not a Tarantino fan because he's obviously something he's drawn upon quite a great deal for his work. Absolutely. Uh, at the same time as having that sort of really charged, racially charged message that Spike Lee... I don't know, just quickly heads up. At some point in this review, I'm going to call him Spike Jones. 
uh, and I'm going to apologise in advance. But uh, Spiker is normally racially charged Messi. He's right there front and centre in this one, in a way in which it wasn't with Inside Man last week. Absolutely. Um, and at the same time, it's funny. This is, I think that is um, its true power in that it does have all of those elements that you talk about, but it is so entertaining to watch that you can't help but be affected and learn from it in so many ways. Like, um, especially this week, I've, I've consumed a lot about kind of um, racial segregation <laughs> in the Lovecraft country and this. And um, it's just a part of um, specifically American culture that I don't really know except what I've seen in Hollywood movies, which is never particularly... Um, not the most fair. reliable source of history, yeah, is it? Not, not the most reliable source. Um, and it's fascinating seeing people use that as not only for a political message, like Spike Lee so often does, but also for um, entertainment and engagement. It is, is brilliant balance of that. You can't help but be really invested in the story. And you do, I, certainly I felt like, wow, I want to know more about this divide and the struggle because it is fascinating. It is a horrendous um, uh, experience that um, is still going on, let's be honest, and especially the ending of Black Lives Matter. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the message of his Ooh. film, is it? This, yeah. is, this, is, this fight isn't over. So yeah, our usual step incredible. back for a second. Mm. Rod Stallworth, an, American, an African-American police officer from Colorado Springs, Colorado, successfully manages to infiltrate the local Ku Klux Klan branch with the help of a Jewish surrogate who eventually becomes its leader, actually mm. based based on actual events. So it's based on the book by Ron Stolworth himself. Um, and and uh, we have a cast here. Ron Stolworth is played by John David Washington, who we talked about uh, a week or two ago who was in, in Tenet. Mm-hmm. I think he's, he's fast becoming uh, a leading man in Hollywood. Um uh, we have Adam Driver, who I think is now a leading man in Hollywood mm-hmm. um, and a very, very fine actor. I like one well-known actors you know in this, we Topher Grace uh, Alec, and Alec Baldwin. Uh, the rest of it's a uh, sort of, you know, um, character actors whose faces you might know. And a big shout-out to Laura Harrier, who plays Patrice um, mm. in, in this film. And you're 100% right, but it's, because the key message gets spiked, I think, wants to take you to Aqua in this film is that this is set in the early 70s, uh-huh. um, and yes, it's kind of funny to see uh, the concept of a black man joining the Ku Klux Klan um, and basically uh, ripping its balls off. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I'll just spoil a little here if you don't want to know anything about what happens at the end of this film. This is not actually the end of the story, but this is, I guess, what one might call an addendum to the film. Mm. And, and I would say... Just to add to my, I mentioned black exploitation. I managed to mention the racial message. I mentioned how funny it is. This is also an incredibly emotionally affecting uh, end to the film, or oh, end, yeah. addendum to the film. Um, so I'm going to tell you about it now. So fast forward if you don't want to know. But basically, uh, following the actual conclusion of the story of the film, the the film incorporates actual footage of the um, Unite the Right rally from a couple of years ago in Charlottesville, Virginia. Where Heather Hyer, who the film is dedicated to, yeah. uh, was murdered by a, a right-wing protester who ran her over in his car, 
and there's actual footage of um, people in the streets marching with tiki torches, yelling, uh, "Jews will not replace us," and you know, white ma- white lives white matter. Lives matter. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, the, the douchebag supreme, or Cheeto Hitler himself, mm-hmm. saying, you know, oh, we're very fine people on both sides, you know. Yeah. Um, and whenever one of my American Trump supporting friends says to me, no, you're just paying attention to the mainstream media. You've just got to go into your own research. You can see all the good he's done. Mm-hmm. He said Nazis were very fine people. Yeah. Full stop. End of the conversation. You, you don't give a shit what he does after that. He said yeah. Nazis were very fine people. I don't care what else he does. So but mm-hmm. that is an incredibly affecting end of a film. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right he, it, to sort of come back to it and go, yes, the civil rights was civil rights movement was 60 years ago, and, and this story set 50 years ago, but the, the ideas and the evil represented by the, the likes of the Klan mm. um, still exist, very much still exist yeah. today, and if the threat isn't gone. The element for me of uh, kind of juxtaposing this the period setting of the movie and this uh, essentially modern day element was just the difference between um, this small little group that uh, of the KKK that the movie kind of follows, and them saying, "Oh yeah, we think that it's it's kind of over and it's just like." The, there's a, there's a, a cross burning right near the end of the movie, and there's maybe like twenty people around the uh, around that cross, and then you see hundreds of people marching. And so I'm like, no, that 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 fucking thing survived and thrived. Unfortunately, that's that's just a, a vu- fucking virus. It's just gone. It's but it, yeah, and now David Duke is a character in the film. We've always wanted weird. David Duke was the Grand Wizard or the uh, leader of the Ku Klux Klan. I think it's so uh, that- stupid that he's called the Grand Wizard. Uh, it is kind of lame. Uh, and then in the 70s, he was the great, and he's actually he's a Topher Grace, plays mm. David Duke. Uh, great really performance, actually, yeah. Really wonderful performance in Topher. Um, and he, in this film, and, and so he actually, so this, Ron Stoll was actually met, or, well, dealt directly with mm. uh, David Duke in the 70s. And, he, and apparently, David Duke didn't realize he was African American yeah. until his book came out in like 2006. Which is kind of crazy, um, but the, I guess the, the other side of the crazy side of a coin is that there's actually David Duke was actually in Charlottesville mm. giving speeches yeah. uh, on the the weekend of a day where Heather Hire was murdered. Yeah. Um, so again, just to come back to your point, this, this virus hasn't been eradicated; it's mm. still very much alive. When the you know fifty years after the character, same the same rebel rouser from the film. He's yeah. still able to be, you know, taken seriously enough today that people turn up to hear him speak. Yeah, yeah. It's it's um, this, this movie has got literally everything going for it. Um, it is stunning from a production point of view. Every single shot just looks absolutely impeccable. From uh, just the the firing range sequences where the KKK are just practicing, it looks beautiful. And, and then having um, uh, John David Washington's Ron just walk to where they were and just pick up some of the shells, it's just beautiful, beautifully filmed. The audio is fantastic. Um, the performances from all of them are absolutely on point there is not a single person hamming it up or anything or there's not even so often when um 
members of the KKK are represented in movies, quite often they are not even, uh, they're, they're always played for dark laughs and they're not I, kind of notified or identified as real people that live in the real world. There's that little element of, oh, no, th we don't really want to show you that much truth here about this this entity. Um, I'm thinking of like a prime example of them. Yes, it was definitely more an out and out comedy, but oh brother, where art thou? Um, and how the KKK were showed in that. There were a lot more in those scenes and it was scary just knowing who the KKK are, what they represent and the amount of people. But for the, the way that, um, I want to get his name. Where is he? Where is he? Um, are you talking about the guy who played Felix? Uh, yeah, the, 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 uh, no, I'm talking about, um, Walter, uh, Brian, Brian Eggold. Eggold. Yeah. yeah. He is really fantastic. When you first meet him, he seems like, you know, he's in this bar playing a bit of pool and he seems like the traditional, um, picture of what a, um, what a KKK member is. He's a very quintessential stereotypical midwestern guy who likes his beers and talks a lot of bad things and he's uh you know he's got that t-shirt white pride white power sort of thing um but as you go with him through the movie it's like he's just a guy he's got fucked up ideals but he's he's they're, they're not playing him as a, a hero or a villain or anything he is just a guy which i think is one of spike lee's real powers um we talked about it last week about every single character in inside man feeling like a complete realized individual they all feel realized even felix um jasper pakanen which is interesting because he's not american he's finnish i believe yeah um, and you and I, I was like no way Wow, okay, that's an incredible performance from a guy who is not actually American because, um, yeah, apparently he turned up at the at the audition doing that accent and wouldn't tell them who he was and had slightly <laughs> 100% evinced that he was an American and that got him the part once he learned he was finished. He was like, oh, my God. Um, yeah. But you're right, like, they're not played purely for laughs. They're not mm. bumbling Keystone Cop sort of, you know, uh -huh. psych gag, you know, setting themselves on fire and the burning cross kind of thing, but that would have been funny. Um, <laughs> uh, they're not just evil either. They're not like, you know, um, moustache twirling villains. They're not like, it was one line. It's like, I'm thinking of the South Africans from uh, Lethal Weapon 2, you know. Exactly, yeah. community, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, it's just been revoked. Um, it was, but they, as you sort of said, they are actual rounded characters to a degree, mm. in the sense that you could believe that these are real people and not just caricatures of uh, or ciphers of what we want to believe a KKK are. Yeah. And, and you're right, I think that's what Mike is saying. Is that, and I think he says it a lot with David Duke's character. We mentioned that Topher Grace is an amazing performance here mm. as David Duke. I think Topher's um, problem sometimes is. He's so likable. Uh, He's such uh, a likable guy. When they cast him as Venom in Spider-Man 3, it was just like, yeah, what? <laughs> um, it was really miscast in a, in, a, in a strange, strange movie that it was. Um, uh, but I think actually really works in his favor here. And if you read about it, like that was what they were trying to get across of his character was that David Duke was quite a 
reasonable sounding and charming individual. Um, and he was a fairly successful politician for a long time. Um, uh, that he didn't come across as a psychopath, you know, racist hillbilly, you know, in a, in a white cape. He came across as a reasonably, you know, a man of a, a reasonable proposition, a man you could, who was an actual politician you could vote for, and uh, yeah. he was, you know, moving away from the, you know, mistakes that the Klan had made in the past, and, you know, a, a, a responsible new face for the Klan, where he was the yeah. same fucking evil virus in a, in a nice suit and, a, and a, mm. you know, a good-looking smile, and Topher really pulled that off in the sense that he represents something absolutely horrible, but he's actually a very likable character. You could kind of, yeah. you know... He doesn't go around using the N word quite so much. Mm. Um, you know, he's he's uh, he never point, loses his temper or anything like that. He's very, very level headed. Yeah. yeah. At one point in time, uh, uh, at Ron Solweb, and this actually happened, is assigned as the security detail for David Duke during his visit <laughs> to to uh, Colorado Springs, and he is reasonably polite to to Ron considering he is an African-American man, and that is kind of, you know, everything again, he's not, everything the, the Klan hates is, you know, mm-hmm. particularly their main target was African-American people. So yeah. um, he, 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 he's, at one point he gets a little bit snippy, but I won't spoil that because it's a great laugh in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't come across, he is the worst kind of evil, the evil that can, you know, the old, but to, to quote the line from the usual suspects, you know, the, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world it didn't exist. And that's yeah. what David Duke is. David Duke is a devil who's convincing you that he doesn't exist. Yeah, he's he's just a, a normal guy, and he can relate with anyone, whether it's politicians or the middle class or the the poor working class. He he he's he's a man who can um, you can he's he's willing to lend you his ear and just share interesting conversation and. Before you know it, you sit like, a, "Oh shit, I'm in this conversation." No, whoa, that's that's scary. It's it, it, but, but this. Hmm. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I was gonna say it's it, and uh, it's an excellent observation that, that Spike does that very skillfully in this film. Mm. Um, mm. I mean, this is a, I mean, this is a classic uh, a film where basically it's about it's set in the seventies, but it's got nothing to do with what happened in the seventies. Mm. It has everything to do with what's happening in the United States today. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know, that is kind of uh, Spike Lee's bailiwick in all of his movies. There's always been this element of kind of a period to his work, but it's also, yeah, it's that is, everything about it is still relevant today. There is, it's kind of timeless, timeless filmography. Um, but this is... I can't believe that this this was um, winner for best adapted screenplay, um, and it was a nominee for best motion motion picture. I think it was for me. I think I said it at the time. I think this was the best picture of the year for me. So this came out in uh, twenty eighteen. So I don't know what other movies came out. Um, but it was try, I'm, I'm going to have a quick look. Um, Let's go in this uh, but as I said last week, this is not the kind of film that was ever going to win Best Picture. It was, you know, it didn't win, and hence he got the consolation prize as Best Adapted yeah. Screenplay. Yeah. Um. Oh, that must be 39. Oh, 
Oh, that makes it really tough because this was for um, Oscar winners of 20, uh, 2019 where it got nominated. The winner was um, Parasite. Which well, I, I, can't speak, I haven't seen Parasite. Yeah, that is so, a phenomenal um, movie, but it is also not as culturally important. And it's not really what the Academy Awards are about, though, are they? It's not the film that's the most culturally important, most important film of the year. It's the best film of the year. Um, look, I mean, I don't know how many Spike Lee films you've seen. I think this is arguably... Look, someone said Do the Right Thing, which is probably his most famous yeah. film. Um, I've seen Do the Right Thing, and I think this is a better, a better film. And a more important film for me, considering... What's going on in that country? What was going on when it was made? Yeah. Thank God, so much of what was going on, well, a giant cause of a problem seems to be on his way out the door. Um, yeah. You know, we're about to flush the giant orange turd. Um, yeah. So, you know, kudos to Spike, he can take some credit for that. Yeah. Uh, but I, I thought this was yeah, a masterpiece. I would go so far as to say it's, it's it got an incredible, you sort of, I think you made a great point to start with, is it's one thing to make a film with a great message. Yeah. Um, Schindler's List. Yeah, obviously, an incredible story uh, that everybody needs to know about, and they, and they should teach that film. That's going to say, Requiem for a Dream. Incredible mm. message. I always used to say, show that film to every high school kid in the country and see how many of them think it's still cool to do drugs. Yeah. <laughs> but it is not. I mean, obviously, you couldn't do that. There's parts of those films. You absolutely couldn't do that. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking of Jennifer Connolly here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's stuff you just couldn't get aware of that. But, like, by no means is that an easy film to watch. Mm. Like, mm. it is a traumatic ordeal of a picture. So, mm-hmm. anything about it, its message about, hey, you know, drugs might seem cool, but, like, you know, you're going to end up in some pretty ugly places. Yeah. Um, that's not going to get through because you, how many people are going to be able to make it through that thing? Not many. Yeah. Um, but when you insert something like this, which is a fairly heavy uh, message about racial injustice, Oh. into a very accessible and funny and entertaining uh, and broad comedy, essentially. Yeah. Um, and then you smack them over the head with that footage at the end. Um, I'd like to think you, you get um, you get your message through to uh, potentially more people. Mm. Yes. So, I mean, a few years ago, I reckon the best film that they made about War and Terror was, or the most effective film, I should say, was oh. Harold and Kumar Go to Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> because as good as the headlocker was, I reckon more people would sit through Harold and Kumar. Yeah, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. It's, there's um, it's very if you what's the best way of describing this? Um, making it uh more palatable for everyone and make you know there's no one wants to sit down and do a three hour exam where they are feeling like under the pump all the time if you are enjoying the experience of being there and learning and consuming and taking it on um you're going to remember it more and this is one of the first movies in probably five years where i teared up at the end when it when it cut to the to the modern day stuff i just teared up it was amazing it it was incredibly affecting wasn't it um uh, and I don't understand how. I guess I'm not, no one can be confused about my politics, mm. and 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 they stand in direct opposition to everything Donald Trump stands for. But uh-huh. um, 
you know, uh, how anybody could look at that situation and, and say, oh, well, you know, his response to, you know, someone getting murdered by a right-wing protester was completely reasonable. Um, you know, uh, I just don't know if anyone, if that doesn't boil your blood, uh, then I, maybe you're beyond help. I don't yeah. know, like, yeah. what, I don't know what else you, what else you could, you could be sharing that would, it, like, um, Anyway, but that's that's a topic for the guy who makes the, the film about Donald Trump that's going to come out one day. <laughs> it would be really interesting if Spike Lee did a movie about Donald Trump. Not directly uh, well, yeah, about I mean, Donald Trump, but about just almost more like a documentary of people living through the last four years of Trump. Yeah. I read a story about it in the Guardian with them. Like, oh, maybe filmmakers shouldn't take the obvious bait. I'm like, please, it's the biggest and most obvious story that anybody's going to have, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's just going to get better because I always say to people, "Tell me he had to be under some sketchy ass shit while he was president. He had absolutely <laughs> no respect for convention or the rule of law. His only main purpose in this is to." enrich himself, his family, and his cronies. So he would have bent and broken any rule he felt he needed to on the on the presumption that he would be president for another four years and he wouldn't get busted because yeah. he's not a loser. Um, so <laughs> uh, I am 100% certain he's been up to sketchy shit. Um, and that's all going to come out when he's not president anymore. So um, that, the story is just going to get better if he ends up in prison. What a story, you know. <laughs> um, so we're off topic, unfortunately. But you are 100% going to come back on your point. You were right. I felt the same way at the end of it when that. Well, it was it was almost like a kick in the guts, uh, that footage of Heather being killed by that asshole protester. Uh, um, you know, it was just brutal. And it was, I mean, from a filmmaking perspective, it, it was genius. Yeah. Absolutely. I thought, um, you know, me and my curse of predicting movies, I thought that it was going to end either um, when the uh, when the bomb went off and um, Ron was being beaten down and they were just going to fade off to that or um, when it was when the, uh, the the burning of the cross is going to happen. I I thought, oh, shit, are they? gonna sort of like take one of the clansmen's masks off and it's adam driver's flip character or something like that and he's somehow been he's he's kind of converted to it or something but i wouldn't have believed that and that would have been a well hell of a cheat the fact that they left those those people burning as anonymous except for one that is obvious considering his shape and and mannerisms um, and then cutting to the modern that I did not see coming and it works like fucking perfect. It was amazing. Uh, as you sort of said, he put, aside from, I think it's a spike at the top of his game. Mm-hmm. Um, and the performances you, you mentioned, Adam Driver was, um, on point for me. And mm-hmm. it's a bit like for me, he's like a bit like Robert Pattinson. I mentioned Robert Pattinson a few weeks ago in Tenet mm-hmm. being my favorite part of that movie. Mm-hmm. And, the further away he gets from Twilight, you know, the bigger everyone has to start somewhere. He was young and he needed the money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it, it, one day I suspect with Robert Pattinson we're going to go, good Lord, what were you doing with those horrible vampire movies? He's going to yeah. be 
if he's not there already, he will be. Yeah. Um, and I think Adam Driver will be the same because I've never seen Adam Driver before he played Kylo Ren. That was the first thing I'd ever seen him in. I know he was in some Skins, I think it was, the British TV show. Is it a British yeah. show? Anyway. Um, um, I don't know. But I've never seen him in anything before, before that. And I think the more I see him pop up in things now, yeah, the more and more impressed I am with his, uh, his range and his acting ability. Um, and yeah, this is him doing comedy and, and nailing it. Um, yeah. I would very much like at some point to get around to see a marriage story when I, you know, don't yeah. feel like slitting my wrists. <laughs> uh, but he was great in The Dead Don't Die. If you've seen that, uh, he was great in the report. Um, he... he was good in Midnight Special as well. Actually, that's an underrated movie. Yeah, that's a great film as well. So, um, uh, Adam Driver, like I said, I think he is a leading man now. I mm. think he, he's 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 a, he's a, he's a uh, yeah. You put your name on the poster next to your whoever, and he mm. will open your movie. Or he's probably a little bit more artsy than you know. Um, but then again, he'll do some. Actually, he's done Star Wars, so he's done his blockbuster thing. Exactly. He's got those royalty checks coming in. Exactly. I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. Um, John David Washington. I knew that he was the son of Denzel Washington, but none of the Denzel Washington charm was on display for me when I watched him in Tenet. No. But then him talking and being ron stallworth in this movie it's like oh shit he sounds so much like his dad and he's his mannerisms are so much like his dad because there was a, a big period where particularly um you know coming off of inside man where there's a lot of swagger to um denzel washington's character as he's moving around and talking and kind of playing off of everyone the way that ron plays off of the, the um the black power members and even that as he builds up more of a rapport with the cops around him it's like oh shit yeah there's there's that denzel charm jeez wow that's he's he's going to be a talented he, uh, man he's I, mean, like I, said, I think he's going to be very much a hollywood leading man um mm -hmm. i think he's we've seen in tenet i, I thought he was solid in tenet yeah without being understanding and i don't think anything that was wrong with any of the shortcomings of his performance in Tenet were his problem. It was, a, I was guess, a, a writing problem. Yeah, it was a story problem. problem. We talked about it. No, we don't know who he is. He hasn't got a fucking name. How investor can you get in the story of a guy who we don't even know who he is? Um, but you're right. I thought he was really great. He can do comedy. He can do action. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think the sky's the limit for, for him from here. Absolutely agree. So moving on from there, Travis, unless you have any final thoughts. No, no, I, I think we've, 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 we've sucked this film's dick enough. Uh, <laughs> but uh, going crass, it's damn tasty. This is, this is such a fucking good movie. Where are we going next, good sir? I'm going to go on a, 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 I'm going to take a less obvious path, but I'm going to end up somewhere that's fairly similar. It's fairly similar territory. Okay, Spider-Man 3, what? right? Sorry, or Spider-Man, well, you got me in one. Uh, no, I, I consider Spider-Man three. I, I am. I am not that. That uh, I'm not that evil. Um, I am the direct caller of evil. Um, one of the producers of this film is Jordan Peele. We're going to go watch Get Out. Okay. Get out, Jordan Peele. I'm surprised you're not get um, going for us. His, his new have one. you seen? Have a question. Have you seen us? Or have, have you? Uh, did you 
Did you see Get Out and not like it? Did I remember that correctly? I saw it. Um, I kind of thought, all right, it's solid. It's not as powerful for me as what everyone was saying. But, you know, it's a seen that, I have not seen Us. Okay, let's make it Us, because at least one of us hasn't seen it. Let's make okay. it Us. Okay. Because I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on that if you're a little bit medi- a bit medium rare on, uh, on uh, Get Out. Mm. Okay. Cool. I'm looking forward to it because that has been uh, popping up on my recommendations. And damn, it's only 99 cents to rent it on uh, Prime Video at the moment. Um, well, I mean, it's, and it's a very highly rated film. It's, it is a different beast mm. to um, to to get out. And hopefully, it gives you enough space to move on the next one because you got Winston Duke, Elizabeth Moss. You know, mm-hmm. people Lupita Nyong'o is always phenomenal. She's she's yeah. a, a powerhouse. She's fantastic. And and yeah, we we could very easily end up in Black Panther territory very simply. It was mm. a simple easy one. <laughs> but anyway, that's for next week. Yeah, lovely. All right. Now, well, keeping on the um, sort of like black culture train, I guess, um, do you mind if I talk about Lovecraft Country? Why not? Fantastic. So, Lovecraft Country, the new limited series from HBO. Um, it is based on a book by uh, Matt, uh, Matt Raff, I think it is. Let me just check that quickly. I want to get it right because it was really, really good. Matt Ruff. Sorry, Matt Ruff. Um, uh, The book came out 2016. This um, series came out this year. And um, it's got an impressive young cast in it um, with a lot of um, faces that you go, oh, I recognize them from from something. Like um, uh, Jury Smollett, she was... Her biggest profile thing, certainly most recently, was uh, she played Dinah Lance in Birds of Prey. And in this mo- uh, in this TV series, she is fantastic. Everyone really pulls their weight, but um, she's great. Um, the, I guess you'd say, the leading man, uh, Jonathan Majors, um, plays Atticus Freeman. Um, he has not been in... I don't think I've seen him in anything... Um, at this point, but after his work in this, I want to see what he's done, and I can't wait to see what he does next, because my god, this man commands the screen, he's fantastic. Um, Courtney B. Vance plays George Freeman. Um, He has been knocking around Hollywood for so long, he was back in The Hunt for Red October, he's been in Space Cowboys, Dangerous Minds, he was in... um, uh, the Versace series of American Horror Story. He was in Project Power, which was a middling Netflix um, super power-ish series. Um, but the other, the the real one that I want to call out is Kenneth Michael Williams. Um, he's a face that you look at and say, oh, I've seen him in stuff. Like he was in 12 Years a Slave, Assassin's Creed. He was in The Wire. He's in Boardwalk Empire. And my God... This is a true, true masterclass of acting and building character growth and forcing the audience to go on a roller coaster with him. Now, um, what is Lovecraft Country? It's a young African American travels across the US in the 1950s in search of his missing father. Um, he, the series starts introducing us to um, Atticus 
and he has recently received a letter from his father, Montrose, Michael Kenneth Williams, saying that he um, is trying to track down information um, about the family on Atticus's mother's side. And this leads him, um, after a few bit of a little bit of investigation, to um, what's referred to as Lovecraft Country, the area that's largely been agreed to be the um, inspiration for a lot of the places that come up in H.P. Lovecraft's work. And things go on a wonderful, wonderful journey from there. Now, I seem to remember you watched a couple of episodes of this. I did. I thought the first episode was one of the best things I'd ever seen. Mm. And I thought the drop-off to the second episode was one of the steepest cliffs I've ever seen. The second episode was massively disappointing for me. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, was there? Was it that it just wasn't engaging to you? Or what was yeah, it yes, about so, the second episode? They came ridiculous. Like, you know... Um, yeah, it, 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 all of a sudden, it, it, I mean, and surprisingly, I, I was having a thing because I, I know you liked it. And it's like, well, as per usual, you like fantasy. I don't. <laughs> uh, and I was, and that was certainly probably part of it. Well, while there were monsters mm. and supernatural, uh, supernatural monsters in the first uh, episode, I think I enjoyed it. It still felt very grounded. Mm. Um, it felt like, and that was kind of an interesting angle. It was almost a bit like mm, X-File, you know, like, I used to like about the X-Files that it was like, mm. what if these sort of things were real? And so we're not going to go to Middle Earth. Mm. Um, we're telling what if these monsters were real in the real world. And so that was an you know, added with the racial justice angle was, was mm. really, really interesting. And mm. then I guess we got ridiculous in the second episode. It was like, oh, I remember. It was like I was bored halfway through because they just compl- everything that says world is built in the first episode. They just kind of threw it away and said, "Actually, you know, it, it's it's some, it's some sort of evil Hogwarts or something." You know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it was it, it just sort of seemed to it seemed, it it seemed to go completely off the rails, and so it lost that connection to reality. Um, and I just completely lost any interest in who the characters were or what was going on. That's very fair, and I am not surprised that that is the bit that turned you off because. Um, it goes very, very pulp, serialized. Um, after watching all the way through this and the way they incorporated the supernatural, the fantasy elements with the, the kind of present, po- present time politics of everything, it made me think, oh, fuck, I want them to do this for John Carter because John Carter is one of those classic quintessential pulp um, pop series, I think they could have some real good fun with a, with a series oh, for for that. I'm 100% on board with that because uh, uh, you and I are the, the founding members of the uh, John Carter of Mars. was actually a pretty good club. Um, <laughs> and that was on TV again recently and I got caught up watching it going, you know, the guy that got to play John Carter was shit. Um, but, uh, you know, this, this film really is actually pretty good. And, um, yeah, it would make great telly if they ever had the balls to try it. But mm. considering how much John Carter lost, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Mm. But, um, you know, the, the first two episodes... But, sorry, but somehow we're getting an Encino Man sequel. We don't put these things out into the real we world. Are. No. Totally sure was saying that the other day. Yes, and I don't know what junk he recently put up his nose. This is touche, touche. 
<laughs> you know, anyone can come out. So like, like Trump is literally doing that right now. So like, yeah, we're going to go for a second term. No, you're not. Everyone else around you is saying no. You're the only person shouting this. So I do not trust Paulie Shaw. That's it, though. Like, in, the, in the world of film, this kind of thing seems to happen a lot. You know, we're like snooping at the idea of coming to America too, or a, or a third uh, Bill and Ted movie, or you know, go back a little bit further. The idea that they would make a fourth Indiana Jones film, including Aliens. I mean, mm-hmm. what kind of crazy idea was that? Although I would be okay with, um, you know, if it was literally they. Um, I can't remember how Encino Man finishes, but in my mind, they put him in a freezer to try and freeze him because he just doesn't fit into the world, and it's just he just steps out of the freezer, and that's it. That's how Encino Man Two just starts. But anyway, <laughs> back onto Lovecraft Country because I love Lovecraft Country. Um, it's this is definitely more of. Um, the series itself is controlled and manipulated and narrated in a way similar to kind of anthology stuff. Um, like the first two episodes are 100% part one and part two. And um, it's kind of, I can see what if it was a movie, like if, if they just sandwich those two together, I think it would feel less of a jarring um style change or a a style manipulation from the first part to the second part where you say Hogwarts in in Lovecraft Country. Um, But then going into episode three, we are brought onto this very supernatural element that focuses much more on Letty's character. And each, each kind of episode focuses on one of the one of the characters a little bit more and you find you go on these journeys with them and you particularly um the episodes uh episode four and five are really pretty good um uh episode four is called a history of violence um after christina mysteriously shows up at her doorstep letty confronts atticus about his plans to uh uh, surreptitiously return to florida and it's um kind of bringing in more of that social issue um, of this is very recently after a lot of the um, the legal um, segregation was coming down, but it hadn't become commonplace at all socially, so to speak. And it's, it's really, really good. Strange Case is... Um, an, an adaptation of a chapter in, in the book called uh, Jekyll and Hyde Park. And it's a really interesting take on um, the variations of being a black woman versus being a white woman. And that's got some interesting bits. But the best episode for me is called Jigaboo And... Um, Diana, who's um, uh, Atticus's cousin, gets cursed, and the monsters that she sees are so simple but fucking terrifying. This is this this episode is the possibly the best um, uh, incarnation of Lovecraftian storytelling of horror that I've seen in a very long time. It is 
really brilliantly acted. It is terrifying without it being violent to the point of gore and um, masochism or anything like that. It is just chilling. It is scary because it really puts you in the mind of a young child in a time of life where it's dangerous to eat. just walk down the street, let alone walk down the street and you're being pursued by a fucking monster. You, There are legitimate supernatural monsters there, but there are legitimate cops that will beat the fuck out of you just because they can and they know they can get away with it. It's really good capturing you. Um, coming into the, the end of it, it loses some of its steam in the final uh, final episode, but I still thoroughly enjoyed the whole thing. I consumed it through, and it is it is brilliant pulp. It is for anyone who likes to keep realism solid and um, a, a strong set of rules from beginning to end. This is not it because we are following characters where the rules do not apply, and the rule of the rules do not apply is consistently broken as well. So it, I can see why a lot of people would find this very frustrating if you're the sort of person that kind of needs that more, more solid structure of this is the world that you are presenting me with. Okay, cool. Oh, wait, you're introducing this to it? No, that doesn't fit into the world you've shown me. I'm out. Bye. That's that extraordinarily frustrating. Yeah, it's just sort of like, hey, the world, that ah, fuck all that. Here's something else. You know, um, and, you know, maybe that's consistent with the novel and the books, I'm not sure. Um, but it didn't work for me, like I said. And it, and it, and it comes back to, again, um, you know, it, it, the show's got to really be kind of something pretty special. To, oh. If it's going to, for me, because of my oh. dislike of the world of fantasy, if you're going to be including a supernatural element, um, it's, I mean, interesting. Art does do that. So, um, oh. and that worked for me. Um, oh. So, uh, it's, it's, Probably has a lot to do with the fact that I'm pretty fussy, but I would point out that if you look at the episode scores, they are very up and down. You know, there's an 8.4 and a 7.1. You know, mm. the one episode you mentioned is an 8.3, then it's an 8.5. Then you, you, the last episode really seemed to uh, frustrate the audience because it doesn't rate so well. I think mm. uh, I, yeah, I'm only two episodes in, so I couldn't say, but I get the impression <laughs> from that and from what I've seen, it's an inconsistent show. I, pers I I smashed through it, I think, in three days, and it it was a wonderful roller coaster for me to go on. Even the lulls, they were like, okay, this isn't a knock on the quality of the show. This is just a quieter episode, much like the a lot of the criticisms that people had with season two of Stranger Things, where I think it's episode seven where it focuses on Eleven, and um, it's all about broadening the the viewpoint of the world of Stranger Things. It's actually a good episode, but it it's a whole episode where you have cut from the point where demodogs are coming up from the from the from the wound, and then it's like, what seriously? We're we're not getting any of that, and we're ah, oh, come on, and it's frustrating. I get that, but as a storyteller, I can also get why it is important to do that for for the bigger picture. Um, but the thing that I would like to really draw to now is um, the book. There are a couple of uh, very meaningful um, differences, unsurprising for translations of novels and things like that to, to the big screen. Um, there are a couple of uh, subtle changes, but also some, some much bigger ones. For example, the character of um, 
Diana Freeman, who is um, in the in the episode Chickaboo-Boo, um, in the books, is a boy called Horace, and um, the that character is interesting and goes through similar problems and character progression as Diana, but the character of Diana is much better. It works better um, because not only is she a young black person walking the streets in a town that does not fucking want her there, um, not only is she being harassed by cops, she's also being harassed by um, sorcerers and monsters and the fact that she's a young girl, which is always going to be a scary scenario when you're talking about everything else around you. So it just heightens everything very, very well. But for me, the big fucking changes, um, it is the character of Montrose, the uh, backstory that goes into his character in the TV series is so good. It is so good. It is not there in the novel. If it is, it is super, super, super subtle. But in the in the TV show, it's brilliant. It is so good to see something like that. Um, and uh, uh, Michael Kenneth Williams plays it so well. It is really impressive. The other big change that they have is the character for George Freeman played by Courtney B. Vance. Um, he's brilliant throughout the whole thing, but it's a very different outcome for that character from um, from one material to the other. I'm not going to go into it because it's, it is a spoiler regardless, um, and I want people to just experience this. But I think overall they did a really good job of taking this book, which is very enjoyable and even more of a pulp story in the likes of Edgar Rice Burroughs and H.P. Lovecraft kind of storytelling where it's almost like a monologue of someone just talking and talking and talking and talking and talking like I do quite often on this podcast but um, it they they kind of go okay we've got the most important elements that are the identified markers of this story and we're going to bring a little bit extra in we're going to put a bit more of that social um, interaction into it and they, they really tease out a lot of things. And I think they do a good service to the book. And it can stand very well in its own right, in my opinion. So I do recommend it for people who like more of the fantasy side of things set in the real world. It's This is not Hogwarts in the Midwest or Hogwarts in, the, in uh, Chicago or anything like that. There is magic in this world. There is the supernatural element. But more often than not, the monsters that that um, creates are nowhere near as terrifying as the ones walking around in human skin. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Um, look, as I said, uh, I know my dad's like the first episode. He found the second episode equally of putting in. I don't know if he yeah. went back live of it. But it's, um, it's worth a look. It's for high, high production values. Mm-hmm. And, and not, not only that, but again, kind of going back to Black Klansman, I think it's really wonderful to have this type of show, which is a fantasy, I mean, they they qualify it as a drum, fantasy, horror, mystery, sci-fi, thriller. You don't get heavily black-led TV shows like this. It's so often, if there's a heavy black cast for a TV show, it's usually going to be very, very focused on 
a particular type of thing and they they don't often kind of bring in the sci-fi side of things to, to things like you think about any of the most famous sci-fi shows of the last 15 years and you're lucky if there's two or three black characters in it and it's like no come on it's i, I it the their legacy and the 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 heritage that they are able to inject in into those characters by simply being black it really makes it makes things so much more interesting because they have been through so much shit and they are still going through so much shit and why do you have to separate that from your sci-fi from your fantasy it's all part of the wonderful tapestry i love it I really, really love it. And, you know, like Battlestar Galactica was praised for its um, political nature in a major TV show. There's no one particularly notable of African-American or anything like that in the show. And it's like, well, if you're going to go politics, why aren't you using that card? Because that would be fascinating. And to just to see more of it, more representation of it. I mean, people loved it when Black Panther came out because they were saying, oh, finally, a black superhero on the big screen. It's great to see that in different stories as well. It's one. It, I want more of that. <laughs> for sure. Look, I mean, it. yeah, it's um, I, I was it's it's something different for sure. I mean, it wasn't mm. for me. Um, but as we know, I am a grumpy old curmudgeon who doesn't like anything. So mm -hmm. that's really not a measure that they should be worried about. <laughs> and I'm a contrarian, so maybe they shouldn't pay attention to me. Speaking of books and things I didn't like, <laughs> uh, uh, we can have a quick chat about it, chapter two, if that's so. If you, if you're, yeah, if you, of course. Uh, if you're okay with um, your strong recommendation there on Lovecraft Country. Um, so, uh, technically, I did watch this for my other show, King for a Day, so if you want to deep dive on that, do uh, keep an eye out for that episode when it comes out. And I don't normally cross over, but I don't know when I'm going to record that one, so we might as well talk about it here. <laughs> yeah. Plus, um, it, it kind of fits in with what you're just talking about with books. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I think a couple of years ago we talked about it, Chapter 1, when mm -hmm. that came out. I think you saw that. Um, uh, I know I liked it. Um, I think we talked at the time about how uh, that uh, Stranger Things, having that Stephen King-esque feeling, especially mm -hmm. Season 1, it kind of really prepared the ground. For uh, something like it, uh, chapter mm -hmm. one, uh, and that kind of just kind of really came in riding on the coattails of Stranger Things, despite the fact that Stranger Things is kind of so heavily influenced by Stephen King's work um, mm. that an actual genuine Stephen King property came in and kind of felt like on it, riding on its coattails. <laughs> um, and I remember thinking, you know, wow, well, that's um, that's pretty good, you know, uh, uh, and. Uh, we all know, and it's sort of a premise of King for a Day podcast, is you never know what you're going to get when you mm -hmm. have a Stephen King property. You could get The Shining, you know, or you could get um, Graveyard Shift, you know. It, it can be it can be out of genius or it can be god-awful. We don't know. Um, but it was a real a real win mm. for me. Um, it, it told, and I really enjoyed the TV show from the 90s, the Tim Curry version of Pennywise. So mm -hmm. they got a lot of things right. The, the cast of young kids was great in the first one. Uh, Amy Machete as a director did a fantastic job. Um, Bill Skarsgård was really quite impressive and terrifying as Pennywise. Mm -hmm. um, and that was just sort of tick, 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 tick. Yep, you've got it right. And that made all the monies. Mm -hmm. Absolutely knocked it out of the box office park. So, of course, they were going to back it up in Chapter 2. 
after making all that money. And I'm sorry to say that Andy McCready has completely and utterly dropped the ball in this picture. Mm. Now, it's not all his fault, I think. I so think a question. I was I was just going to say I I think um, he the casting of the adult versions of the kids was really good. Yeah, now so you've seen this. Yes, fantastic. I agree. I have no problems with the cast. Um, mm. We have Jessica Chastain playing the uh, uh, Beverly, James McAvoy playing Bill, Bill Hager is Brit is Richie Tozier. Uh, Isaiah Mustafa is token Mike Hanlon, um, and Jay Ryan is Ben Hanscom, uh, James Ransom is Eddie Kasparak, and the very briefly seen Andy Bean is Stanley Uris, and we have Bill Skarsgård back here as, yeah. um, as Pennywise, and we have for some of the kids, the kids who are in the first one, uh, in some flashback scenes, we see the, uh, the Losers Club again as, um, yes. as teens, the kids, um, so I think he completely dropped the ball here for for a couple of reasons, and he was already had an uphill battle here. Yes. Um, and, and funny enough, they make fun of it all the way through this film. The uphill battle was the second half of it is the significantly worse half of it. Yeah. Um, so the original, I talked about the version from the nineties with Tim Curry that was shot as a mini series and shown over two nights here in Australia. And I assume it was done that way everywhere. Yeah, and the first half is fucking brilliant because yes. that's the more interesting part of the story. So as brilliant as Tim Curry was as Pennywise, the second half of the story is significantly less interesting. Um, and I think that one of the reasons is it kind of uh, Stephen King doesn't know how, how to end the story. The end is ridiculous um, <laughs> and doesn't really work. Because I, I had read it; it was a very long time ago, and I just don't think you can film what actually happens in the book because it's a little bit too explicit, if I recall correctly. Uh. Um, uh, also, because they're adults, the feeling of menace is significantly less for some reason. Like, like you know, and an adult gets taken out by an evil clown, you're like, oh, well, fuck you, you probably shouldn't have been, you know, <laughs> at the time, I don't know. Like, but there's a, lot, there's, a serious, there's a real sense of menace when mm. it's a small kid who's potentially going to be, you know, eaten by Pennywise. Mm. Um, you, you don't really feel the same way, I think, when they're grown-ups. Mm. Uh, so first things first, he had an uphill battle to make. The significantly less interesting part of a story, as interesting as the first part, he had yeah. uh, a battle of trying to make us care about grown-ups as much as we did a bunch of really awesome kids. Mm-hmm. Really hard to do it, no matter how good your cast is. That was going to be hard. And, mm-hmm. and to increase his difficulty, this is three hours long. It's so long. So long. You it feel it. Had to take 40, 50 minutes out of this somehow. Yeah. I, I, I know... And again, the book is, you know, it's a paperweight. It's massive. And that's probably why they made it into a miniseries the first time. It was like four hours, three or four hours of content yeah. in their miniseries. Yeah. Um, so there was, I mean, that gives you an idea of a degree of difficulty they're going to here. But, you, you re- I mean, like, you kind of really had to choose the parts you were going to film. You, you couldn't have got, I don't know how we could have looked at this and gone, you know, oh, no, I have to have a three-hour picture. I can't possibly tell this story in less than three hours. You mm. need to, the thing about horror films is very, very few of them can pull off a three-hour runtime in my in my experience. You really need to get in, scare the shit out of people, and get the fuck out. Yeah. You don't, it went, the longer you stay around, the less sense your story makes, and the more time we've got to go, eh, I'm not really buying this, or, you know... Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's that if you have a comp- utterly compelling story here, 
like you did in the first half, you might get away with it. But this is 35 minutes longer than the first round. That was two hours, 15 minutes. This is two hours, 49 minutes. So it's significantly longer uh-huh. than the first half of a story, which we actually cared about. We were all interested in seeing. So um, the, the, that, was, that was probably the thing that really frustrated me the most was how long it was and how many scenes to me felt irrelevant. Uh-huh. So, there's, so um, to give a bit of context, if you haven't read the book, you haven't seen the previous film. Um, 27 years after the first encounter, the Losers Club, the kids from the first film, have made an agreement. If Pennywise comes back to Derry, their town, no matter where they are in the world, they'll come back together to fight him again and try and kill him. And so they've actually all got up, and most of them have become very successful in life, except for Mike, who stayed in Derry. Uh, they they uh, called back as, as Pennywise comes back every 27 years. And Pennywise has re-emerged and they call back to Derry to come back and you know, fight him. Um, and when they get there, uh, they don't actually remember very much about their past at all. It all starts to come back to them. But then they all go, oh, well, let's, just, let's do the Scooby-Doo thing and split up <laughs> and try and fight him. Or do, I don't really know what the fuck is going on. But they all split up and explore different parts of the town. And all of them, of course, had separate scary encounters with Pennywise, very much like they did in the first film. That mm. kind of made sense in the first film, because mm. Pennywise generally preys upon children. Didn't make a lot of sense why they're all splitting up here. It seemed contrived that they're all yeah. going off in their separate directions this time. And again, as just again and again and again, different scenes of them being spooky houses with Pennywise you know, taking on spooky new forms to chase them around and not kill them. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I lost count the amount of times that happened. Uh, or the, the, the amount of fake outs. Oh, good, he's finally dead. And oh, no, he's not. You know, like, oh, yeah, it was so predictable and boring. And you're like, yeah, well, this film's got 25 minutes to go. You didn't kill him. <laughs> you know, yeah. so uh, I felt like they could have easily cut some of it out. Most of it didn't work for me mm. in the sense that. Um, I wasn't, yeah, I remember in the first film, there are a number of occasions where, the, you know, you'd see, I know a scare's coming, mm. but then you'd actually see the monster version of um, Pennywise appear out of the darkness, and you get this chill down, mm. you know, the hair stands on it, and you get a chill down your spine, you're like, oh, that's fucking cool. Yeah. Um, I, I think I got that once in this film. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, what? if you want to, for those things to work, I needed to be getting it every time, um, and and I just wasn't. So uh, and it's not no disrespect to Skarsgård because he still does a great job as Pennywise. It's just yeah. the story itself is it, it's shot its load by the time you start the second film, and it's it really has. It's really it was sort of like if you get to the middle of the book, the end of the second the first film is the high point of the story. And then you sort of, it's, you know, you sort of slide into the, the hardly, uh, deeply unsatisfactory ending, which is Stephen King's trademark. And like I said, they make fun of it all the way through the film. So Bill Denver, played by James McAvoy, is an author in this book. And there's a great gag all the way through the film. You don't know how to end your films, write better endings. You know, I didn't like Isn't the ending of your even, book. He goes into a place to buy, um, uh, uh, what's the name of his bike? Yeah, and it's Stephen King that serves him. 
Yeah, and he goes, oh, no, I don't like the end of your book. I thought it was Stephen King does cameo in a lot of his films, so it was kind of yeah. cool to see him pop up. But I'm like, it was, yeah, it, 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 that, was, that gag was like, kind of funny. They're like, ah, that's funny, because uh, if you do listen to King for a day, that's something we talk about quite regularly. He's, the end of Stephen King's book, he has these amazing setups and cool ideas, and then he's like, oh, I don't know, a wizard did it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and he had, he had a high point of the film for me, was at one point um, they cut off the head of one of Pennywise's monster forms, and the head rolls around the ground, grows a set of legs, and starts walking around like a spider. And somebody says, "You've got to be fucking kidding me!" Yeah. And I'm like, "Oh my god!" I just that reference. <laughs> um, that one would have gone over a lot of heads, I think. Yeah. So like, as, as, as the legs are coming out of it, I'm like, "Hang on, this." This is the thing. They've already done that. Yeah. So you get a 100% pass on reusing that scare because you gave us that line. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, uh, I liked that, and that was a nice little... Uh, there was also another nod to, to a horror classic. At one point, Pennywise is harassing someone in the bathroom and sticks his head around through the door and goes, here's Johnny, um, yeah. which was nice as well. Um, so kudos to them for the nice little meta nods to uh, the King's other films, the fact that King can't write an ending. But, I mean, it's, it doesn't really work in the sense that if you're making a joke about the fact that you can't write an ending, and that you is should really stick your own ending, yeah. <laughs> it's a very, it's dragging your film down. So, um, yeah, look, again, like I said, the cast was fine, you know, um, they just, the characters they're playing are less interesting than they are as children. Yeah. Um, just by the very fact they are adults. I have a suggestion, and I wonder if if you think it might work, you know, the story of it, it is told on these two very different timelines. If they intercut between the two throughout the, the, the telling of this story, whether it's a, a TV show or two movies back to back, if they intercut between the adults and the kids, like the first time we, we meet them, it's them as adults coming back to Derry and they are, being haunted and as we slowly as they slowly remember their time in Derry that's where we get more of these um, episodes of when they were kids and they first encounter this and the the end of that that story the end of that telling is them saying we're going to go back to Derry if it comes back leave it a much bleaker sadder ending rather than just going oh yeah we're going to do this instead do you think that would be more palatable Potentially, though, I think that would be a little bit disjointed. Um, and it's kind of like you'd be cutting from the interesting story to the uninteresting story, and, <laughs> and, and you'd be then going, yeah, okay, well, you know, I can't wait to get back to Finn Wolfhard because he was cool. I guess instead of it kind of going... Bit -a -bit -a -bit -a -bit -a -bit <laughs> Just at the end, I, it would kind know, of go... <laughs> I, I, I don't know what the studio was thinking of this. I mean, obviously, Andy Machetti... Not a particularly well-known filmmaker, I think, before uh, It Chapter One. I think mean, that was his, his breakout film as a director. Well, the one that stuff. got him uh, attention was Mama. Mama, yeah. yeah. I think the big commercial hit, though, was It. Yeah. And after he made a squillion dollars, like, they made a lot of money on it. Uh, I, don't oh, think yeah. it costs a lot. I don't think it costs a lot to make. Mm. Uh, I, I, I think it was a fairly, fairly reasonably priced, production and they mm. make, once you make that much money for them i think the studios go yeah no worries mate a lot more mm. um, whereas and we talked a few weeks ago about christopher nolan now needs someone to tap him on the shoulder and go 
People uh-huh. need to be able to hear the film, Chris. Um, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, someone needs to tap Andy in their shoulder and go, people need to go home to sleep, Andy. You know, uh, no, and not in the cinema, preferably. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I was, the, the length it was such a, a drag for me, and it, it just wasn't a good enough story to run for yeah. three hours um, by any stretch of your imagination. Like I said, it needed to cut 40, 50 minutes out of it for me to, yeah. to be, it needed to be a lot tighter, a lot punchier. Um, and, and as I said, I appreciate he had an uphill battle to start with. So um, if, you, if you're like me, and I heard, and I suspected it was going to suck because, as I said, I, I knew it was going to be hard to make this part of the story interesting. And then the reviews were middling. Um, so if you've been like me and you've been holding off all this time, I can't recommend it unless you are a freak who is a huge fan of Stephen King, uh, in which case you probably already saw it, or you have a particular affinity for one of the actors in the film. It's it's an uphill battle. I had to watch it in two over two sittings because I just had to stop. I was so bored. Yeah, and even you know, to the to the to its the film's detriment, it, every time they cut back to the kids in this chapter two the the life in the movie came back a bit more and it, it did it did there's something about those characters as children which yeah. is so much more compelling when they are as adults and yeah and like you said there's no no criticism of a cast here they, they've got a great talent here mm. it's just they're not as interesting as adults yeah absolutely absolutely entirely um so that was a bit disappointing but if you want a a deeper deconstruction as i said do tune into our uh, episode of um King for a day, whenever that fucking thing comes out. <laughs> we get our shit together, that would help. <laughs> yeah. Um, should we, do you want to talk about uh, a bit more about The Crown, or should we go I'll on to... Cover it off. Um, uh, you can find information on The Crown anywhere, and uh, I, I, I won't believe the point. We are at season four of The Crown. Mm. Um, I realised when, when season four came out, I never finished season three. So I had to chew through the back end of season three to get mm-hmm. to this point. Season three is great, by the way. Uh, very enjoyable. Uh, it takes a little while to get used to Olivia Coleman as the queen. I really, really like Claire Foy as the young queen Elizabeth. Um, obviously, you know, if you're going to skip ahead 30 years, you do need to change actresses. So, um, <laughs> and Olivia Coleman's fine in it. But I'll, I'll cut and say season four is the Charles and Diana season. Okay. And that's not a good thing mm-hmm. uh, for me. Okay, I am somebody who always um, found Princess Di utterly boring as hell. Like I, mm-hmm. I mean, I have no interest in the royal family. Period. I mean, and yet here I am. I watch The Crown. The Crown is great storytelling, and I think in the past I've said it's like because it sort of delves little snippet, interesting snippets of history which, you know, I, I don't know anything about, like, or I've never heard of. Like, you sort of jump on Wikipedia afterwards and go, oh, my God, the Queen, that idiot I'm in. Where did that happen? Did that real? Oh, my God, it's real. <laughs> um, uh, you know, to some degree, uh, uh, I think in season four, we started to really move into territory where it's a lot more contentious, the kind of things it's telling stories about. Um, so especially, I mean, especially two characters in the sense of Charles and Di who are, Insanely, the story is insanely famous. You know what happened between the two of them. Everybody knows, mm-hmm. um, and there is a prevailing perspective on what happened between them. And this film really just sort of plays into that space. You know, oh yeah, the royal family are assholes. Charles is a dick. 
Diana is a poor, innocent, you know, naive girl dragged into something she didn't understand and was treated very poorly by, by horrible people. Um, you know, there seems to be a lot of contention about whether that's true or not. Mm. Um, so I, if, you, like, if you're like me and don't really care about the interpersonal drama, about what happened between the two of them. Did he cheat? You know, did she cheat? Was he really ever love her and all that yeah. kind of bizzo? Then if you're like me and this is, you're not interested in this, um, you know, tabloid bullshit, you might find this season a little bit hard going. It's not terrible by any stretch of imagination, but quality is still there. My God, the quality. It still looks incredible. Mm-hmm. The acting's fantastic. Direction's great. It's the most part. Um, it, I understand that Gillian Anderson is fantastic in this. I was going to say, well. Gillian Anderson as Ms. Badgery Thatcher steals every scene she's in. I mean, uh, I've had people texting me who are a little younger than me going, Was she really like that? I'm like, Yes, she was a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can try and change my mind, people. But she, Maggie, I mean, I don't know if you're old enough to remember her, but uh, you grew up actually in the country she ran, and she was a piece of shit. Yep. Um, and just happened to be a piece of shit Prime Minister for 10 years. We had that happen here too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, for you wouldn't, and she really nails the mannerisms, the hair, the voice. She is wonderful. And there are scenes where she goes head to head with the Queen. Um, like, a, a brilliant. But we do spend a fair bit of time on Thatcher and Thatcherism, and that is interesting stuff to me. And that maybe it says something to me being a person interested in politics and history, that's the far more interesting side of it to me than the melodrama of the Charles and Diana story. And, of course, mm. you couldn't possibly ignore it, right? It's like the biggest thing to come out of a royal family in the last 50 years. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Season 4 started, like the opening title card, The Crown, Season 4. Um, uh, Charles and Diana have recently been married, and then it cut face to black, and then just the word... Meanwhile, this comes up and it's just I, a completely I, 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 different I would, I would story. All that happened in a, in a crawl like Star Wars, you know. It, it's not only these one and yeah, yeah, yeah. The royal <laughs> family elsewhere is, in the royal family. And then we, we, sort of, we, we pan sideways and we have Charles. And I don't know. Like, it'd be, it would be fantastic if you had a crawl to start with. But it, it could have got. A, I mean, obviously, people find the story compelling today. People still love Diana very much. Mm. I have always been deeply fascinated about what people find so interesting about her. Um, she's played very nicely by uh, Elizabeth Debicki, who we talked about again from Tenet the other week. Mm-hmm. Um, she does a very good job as Diana. She's very believable. Um, uh, Charles Edwards, uh, sorry, Charles Edwards, he, he can't, the guy who plays Charles is fine. It's uh, not Elizabeth Debicki. Isn't it? No, it's um, Emma Corrin. Elizabeth Debicki, it's right here. Princess Lady Diana. Diana. Prin- Maybe she's playing the younger one. Oh, maybe, maybe. Because there is a uh, a younger version of Di in the oh, earliest, okay. there we go. In no, the, at the start one. of the season, but um, um they're censoring say, it for the British people. They've got a different actress doing it. It was an Emma Corrin plays here, Princess Diana, but uh, Elizabeth Dickey. Maybe it's in some of the later episodes. They must have two actresses. Mm. But um, uh, I was going to say, Helen Bonacarta remains. Uh, another highlight for me, she plays Princess um, Princess Margaret, uh, and I'm very much enjoying her work because she had on the bottom fucking Carter, right? Like she's just she's she's, she's just class. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, it just constantly comes back to the refrain about Charles and Die, and I just don't care. 
Uh, yeah. And I never did. Um, so, look, it's probably going to count most people in, though, because most people do care. Mm. Interestingly, Australia is featured in one of the episodes. In episode six, Terra Nullius, uh, Charles and Die tour Australia. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, that's um, uh, actually pretty questionable. Is mm-hmm. that in Spain? Okay. Have you been to Spain? Yes. Does it look like Australia? I suspect it doesn't. No, not really. It's. <laughs> I, I think it's kind of. It's probably the equivalent of a spaghetti western. <laughs> and so they, 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 there's a scene where they're supposed to be in Brisbane, and you're like, "Yeah, that ain't Brisbane." <laughs> a tapas down under. <laughs> yeah. And they, 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 so they shut down. They didn't come to Australia, which is fair enough. It's a long way uh, for uh, for a UK based production to film one episode, I guess. But uh, they also feature Bob Hawke, who was a, a great Australian prime minister, played by Richard Roxburgh, and um, uh, probably best known, he was in Moulin Rouge, Van Helsing, uh, a few lots of other Australian things. Um, wonderful actor, really pulls off Bob Hawke pretty well, except that they fictionalise all the stuff that he actually said. Okay. So there are like TV interviews where the character in the show says of the Queen, well, you wouldn't put a pig in charge of a herd of prime cattle, would you? Even if the Queen does wear diamonds, if a pig does wear diamonds or something like that. Um, he never said that. He didn't compare the Queen to a pig. And he never would have. He was a far more skilled politician and diplomat than that. Uh, he was Prime Minister for a great number of years, and I happen to admire Bob Hall greatly. Um, so, you know, take it all with a grain of salt. But yeah. the fact that they, they took an episode, a thing that actually happened, a movie that actually happened, and then made him sound kind of ridiculous, um, <laughs> I find a little bit offensive as an Australian because yeah. I, I don't like the way that they kind of portray Australian leaders. You know, kind of like, it's okay in The Simpsons where, you know, I'm going to tell a Prime Minister about this. Hey, you know, like, oh, it's just a little kick of a thumb. That's a <laughs> it's okay if you're doing satire, but if you're telling me, mm. you know, in an actual show like this, I didn't mm. enjoy that. Um, so, look, it's, as I said, it's still good. I will. I haven't quite finished season four yet because, I, as I said, I just find it so hard just churning through this Diana Charles mm. stuff. But, mm. again, if you like that kind of thing and you think they're great, you're, you're, you know, you're probably going to enjoy it. Uh, for clarification on the Liz- Elizabeth Debicki, she has yes. been cast as Princess Diana for season five and season six. Five. See, funny thing is, I saw her listed in the front page of it. I'm like, she doesn't look like her. She's a lot taller in real mm. in um, in uh, Tenet. So there you go. Um, uh, I'll look forward to seeing what they do with her next year when she gets run over by a car in Paris. <laughs> well, I mean, the fact that it's being listed on Elizabeth Debicki's IMDb for season five and six is like. Wow, they're stretching out that Diana stuff. Because I think the season four ends um, about the end of the cha- the um, the, the uh, factory years, and so that's the late eighties, I think, from memory. Okay, yeah, eighty nine, ninety, I think Thatcher got the ass. Um, and so that means they've got two seasons where uh, you know, which they're basically going to be around six or seven years, but but Princess Diana before she died, she uh. died seven or eight years actually. All right, then. Well, well, trust in them. They, they make quality telly. It's, it's, I'll just say this. Take all of it with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. It's not as history. We talked about it earlier. TV and film are not a place to get a history lesson. Correct. Correct. It takes a lot of skill for uh, 
um, someone to be able to be an education educator and entertainer all at once and not have one control the other too much. That's why we are so good at what we do here. Absolutely. We are neither professionals nor masters. <laughs> we are the armchair producers. Now, should we talk about the boss? We can talk about the boss. Let's talk about the boss. So, Bruce Springsteen brought out his new album this year, Letter to You. And, you know, last week we talked about uh, ACDC's new album, Power Up. And I said, it's very ACDC. I say exactly the same thing about Letter to You, I think. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. I, I suspect you don't get to recording your 20th studio record and yeah. not have a pretty good idea of the kind of music. Not, not too many left-hand turns at the 20th um, Yeah. Unless you're David Bowie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would have been really confusing if Bruce Springsteen had come out and gone, you know what? Letter to You is actually um, a story from song one, track one, all the way to track 12. It is about the chronicle of me sending my first letter to Father Christmas. I just seem just coming out like acapella, like a dozen love songs, you know, <laughs> you know, like ooh baby baby stuff, you know, like <laughs> I'm taking Photoshop in strange new directions. <laughs> um, but that would be it. Would be uh, I think by the time you record your twentieth record, you've been doing in a business for forty mm-hmm. odd years. You, you know what you like to make. Yeah, um, and, and this this is this is kind of classic Springsteen really it's it's his sound it's his um it's his um, feel everything about it is very much what he has always been and that's not a bad thing because Springsteen has made some absolute fantastic stuff again much reflecting my my comments about ACDC it's just kind of a lot to go through all you know like one album one after the next after the next it's much more palatable for Springsteen compared to ACDC for me. But um, it's like, yeah, if you like Springsteen stuff, you're probably going to like this because he doesn't put a foot wrong. It's just more of what you know. That's a fair point. I don't think there's any major musical um, left hands in this. There's not a, a great deal of musical variety. It's not like, um, mm. yeah, they, oh, there's a power ballad in the middle, you know. Mm. Um, it's sort of folky, nostalgic, hmm. what is it, uh, Springsteen rock style rock. Um, and it does, I, mean, I think that's maybe what I enjoy about it, is it kind of, and, and what a lot of people who are maybe Springsteen fans do enjoy, it feels familiar. Mm. You. Yeah. Um, so it's like watching an episode of The West Wing, but for the first time. Yeah. Uh, and when you get that warm, I know this feeling, um, but I don't know what happens at the end of this episode, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's that's, that's um, maybe something that's sort of because I'm old and I've been a Springsteen fan for a very long time. But not a massive mm. one, but a fan mm. nonetheless. Mm. I agree. I, the, the one thing that um, definitely stood out to me more with this album than any of his other stuff, and maybe I just wasn't tuning into it and I just didn't notice that it was there, but for me it was a lot more of the kind of religious connotations of stuff like one of the songs is the power of prayer and if i was the priest and things like that it's like i don't remember that really being a theme in his previous stuff i mean he's 
you know, he's a, he's a red-blooded American and he's absolutely entitled to have whatever religious beliefs that he wants, but I just don't remember it particularly going no, in. No, I, mean, sure, I don't remember a lot of overt religiosity in his previous work, but it mm. does tend to creep into a lot of older artists. Like, I remember when Nick mm. Cave started writing a lot of songs about God and Jesus and stuff, and that's a long time ago now, but mm. it, it seems like a bit of a strange choice for him, but... Um, eventually everyone seems to discover religion in, in one way, shape or form yeah. if you're a professional musician. It just seems like a weird, uh, the, the, a very unusual extreme change for a born in the USA, where he's, he's like really pro-USA. And that, that, so that, much that, of that is not pro-USA at all. That song is all about a lament of someone who's come back from Vietnam. Um, it, it's actually a deeply unpatriotic song, and that was what was um, always ironic is the fact that um, uh, Ronald Reagan went around using it at these um, campaign events and, like, no one's listening to the song. It's not, a, it's not about, hey, we're so great um, <laughs> in, in any way, shape, or form. But you're right. It, 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 certainly, I don't recall a lot of... Um, uh, by no means am I a super fan by New Stretch. Mm. I, I dip in and out uh, of Springsteen. Um, but I don't recall a lot of um, a lot of songs about Jesus and God in there, that's for sure. Yeah, it was just an interesting, um, just an interesting uh, point, and it, yeah, it didn't particularly distract me from it. It was like, huh, that's a new theme for him, I think. No, I don't think I ever thought of him as a particularly religious guy. Uh, and, and you're right, for an American, that's probably a little unusual because they're usually pretty upfront about it if they are. Yeah. Um. No, I think you're right. I think, I think I've heard this scene you said this is a love letter or a thank you to his fans. Mm. So you've probably kind of nailed it with your opening point there. If you like Springsteen, you're going to like this. Mm. If you hate him, this is probably not going to change your mind. Mm -hmm. If you've never listened to Springsteen before, I don't know that this is the best entry point. Yeah. Where, whereas with ACDC, the power-up is quintessential ACDC and people who are so like they may have heard one or two songs of ACDC because of the MCU and Tony Stark listening to it on blast as he's coming into Germany. Um, and I go, Oh yeah, I'll listen to some of that. This is probably going to be the first one that comes up when you Spotify or um, any, any, any streaming service, their, their new album is going to be the one that they're promoting and pushing. If you listen to it, you're going to be cool. I want to listen to some of their other stuff. You're going to kind of feel like, yeah, they've kept it going. Whereas with, with this one, it's like, okay, um, this is interesting. Hmm, Springsteen. I've heard a couple of his um, classic songs, but this is, this is like it, but, eh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I would start with, yeah, maybe start with, you know, Darkness on the Edge of Town, which is one of his classics from... 80s, I think, that one, or if you want something a bit newer, I mean, I think it's one of these deeply underrated records was The Rising, which came out just after 9-11, um, and actually, uh, he wrote all the songs before 9-11, uh, so they're not 9-11 songs, but they all seem incredibly, for some reason, very, very relevant um, um, when they came out after uh, the attacks there, mm. um, and that, that one's a, a personal favourite of mine. Uh, and full of really good good songs, but again, probably not. This is not the best first place to start for you. If you're gonna, then again, yeah, you know, I'm sure if you look up Springsteen and Spotify, apart from this being new, I don't think any of his songs will actually be in the top five songs that he's played. Yeah, 
Yeah. Dancing in the dark, born in the USA, are probably far more likely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, last but not least, you want to talk a little bit about the knife? Uh, yes. So the suggestion from you last week is to check out the knife because they, uh, you were reminded a little bit of the knife by your experience of Pucifer. Mm. Um, I didn't get the same feeling as you. I can see what you mean by kind of experimental. Mm. Um, the knife reminded me more of someone like um, Primal Scream. Um, okay. uh, uh, more electronic. Mm-hmm. Um, at least we listened. I listened to Silent Shout, their 2006 record. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of it really actually it had quite a strong vibe of something like uh, Primal Scream or or one of those sort of hmm, sort of electro anarchisty kind of vibe, uh, as opposed to the piece of very probably we I don't know what they are, but they're a little bit more straight ahead rock. Then <laughs> they don't really have that strong electronic element, I mm. think. At least not their more recent records, but that's not a criticism. I can I can see your point. It's just that, like as I said, my first thought was mm, this is more primal scream and Pucifer. Um, uh, I was I didn't like it. <laughs> um, I like some of it, um, but I think the one you called out was the Captain was a song that was in a game trailer or something. I think um, in a movie trailer. Um, and I, I was listening to this the other night after after we talked, and I was like. What the fuck is this song? This song's awful. Uh, and I was like, oh, well, it's the one you said you really liked. I feel like a complete arsehole. Um, uh, yeah, I, it's not for me. No. Um, if you, I mean, to, to take that point, then again, I never really got into Primal Scream. Uh, I bought a couple of their records because they were cool. Uh, you know, one of those bands you were supposed to be in, to if you like, especially like Nine Snails, who are kind of. Had their electronic element to them mm. as well. You, know, you should like people go. Oh, you should like Primal Scream, and uh, you know, you know <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you never really a couple of songs here and never never really did it for me. Um, so uh, I, I struggled with the knife. Unfortunately, it really didn't do a lot for me. I'm sorry. That's all right. I won't hold it against you. <sighs> we know that again. I am a cushions. grumpy old curmudgeon who doesn't like anything. So you know. <laughs> <laughs> Keep that in mind at all times uh, when I'm not recommending records to you. Um, <laughs> and I, um, yes, it's uh, they, they definitely. I think I made the um, uh, the uh, call last week about whether they were dubstep. <laughs> um, and, and, and what I was thinking of was Knife Party. Ah, yes. Okay. They, they were they were in an episode of Breaking Bad. Um, but uh, not not dubstep. Sort of a weird sort of electronica. Mm. Experimental electronica. Mm. All right. Well, anything else that you wanted to talk about this episode, or we keeping I, it relatively short and sweet? I think it'd be really short because uh, my iPad is uh, uncharging itself quickly, despite the fact it's plugged in. <laughs> Apple for the win. Um, but uh, hopefully, it's been clear for our dear listeners. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll be back next week, and we'll talk a little bit about us. Uh-huh. So it's going to be a real interesting one. I can really see uh, that being a good conversation with you and I, because like it could go either way with you on this one. Uh-huh. It, it's a, it's a, it's the kind of film that splits people right down the middle. You get it or you don't. Yeah. Um, and if you don't get it, you're not going to like this film. I'm going to call it right now. Mm. Uh, that's not a bad thing. Right? I'm not criticizing. I'm not criticizing George in advance. I'm just saying it. You know, there are sometimes like if there are like there are films that you sort of go right down the middle. If you don't pick up on, if you don't buy into what the central premise of a story Absolutely. is, 
it's just going to bore you to tears, and you're going to go, what the, what the hell is going on? Uh, and this is one of those kind of films. Um, so I'm not saying George won't like it, listeners. I'm just saying if he doesn't, mm-hmm. if he doesn't pick it up, if you don't buy it, and you know, that happens with me all the time, right? I don't buy the central premise of something, mm-hmm. and it just, yeah, it loses you. So basically what you're saying is if I don't like it, then I'm a racist. Exactly, yes. Yeah, and yeah. You, you're, you're a Trump supporter and, you know, we're going terrible, to be terrible person. And we're going to be cancelled. It's just because I've always wanted to be a wizard. And then, you know, you know, a realization that the highest person in the KKK is a wizard. That's how you get magical powers. There you go. That's wow. you heard it here first, folks. Uh, <laughs> white nationalists have magical powers. That's... <laughs> you know, that would be actually a really interesting premise for a book. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> just, just if, you know, basically magic was not this oh it can be used for good or ill it is something you gain just from doing evil shit and as a byproduct of that people who are racist bigoted just the scum of all society have magical powers it'd be like the anti-x-men it'd be like you know like you know sir robert johnson who sold his soul to the devil so he could learn how to play guitar really well. <laughs> okay, expect there you go. You got a sneak peek in one of George's future novels right there. <laughs> I got to finish my next, one, my the current one first though, and it's coming along well, ladies and gentlemen. Excellent. But on that note, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us here live and for um, reaching us on podcast services around the globe. Um, next week we are talking about us. I'm looking forward to seeing it. And until then, good night. Good night.